0: Hello and welcome to Mobile Interactions Now, the podcast where industry pros share first-hand experiences on making mobile interactions work. I'm Chris and I'm part of the team here at Tentech. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Mark Smith. Mark is the founder and CEO of Contact Engine. Mark spoke to Gene about the complicated topic of AI as it relates to customer experiences and omni-channel communication the two of them covered so much interesting ground that we're splitting the interview into two parts. So, here is part one of our conversation with Dr. Mark Smith. Take it away, Jean.
1: Mark, welcome to the show. I'm honored and thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, We gave an intro in the beginning, but I know people would love to hear more about you and your work from you. Uh, My
2: name's uh, Dr. Mark Kingsley-Smith, and I run a company called Contact Engine, who are based in uh, London, Bletchley Park, and Northern Virginia.
1: I've been postponing this big topic of AI, you know, waiting for just the right guests uh, to have on the show. So without further ado, now it's time. So let's jump right into it. Um, starting from the very definition, and I want Mark's definition, not some wiki's definition. So what, what is AI?
0: Uh,
2: for me, w- what we do is a, is a subset of AI. So uh, most of our work is around uh, natural language understanding and, uh, and machine learning. Uh, machine learning has its origins in uh, in statistical learning. It's a, it's a, a maths technique, and uh, what it means for us is that we can become more human-like in the way that we engage in in conversations with our clients, customers. So for me, AI is about being empathetic in the way that you engage automatically with people and knowing when computers are best and when humans are best and trying to marry those two together in a way that makes everybody happy
1: that knowing part kind of you know picks my curiosity here so how are machines are actually knowing um what does it take to let them know what they're doing
2: Yeah, it's an interesting uh, interesting question. I'm not uh, a great believer in uh, singularity. I'm not a great believer in machines ever acquiring sentience. I think uh, The Terminator was a film and a work of fantasy. But there are certain things that computers do that are remarkably better than humans. And and the thing that they do most brilliantly is dealing with mass data sets and making decisions based on more information than a human being could reasonably hold in their mind we have a vast vast amount of data a vast amount of information that we've collected from customers which um, we can then label or classify if you like and because we we begin conversations that conversation might be around uh, a repair journey so going to somebody's home to fix something or it might be to do with a, a a an unsuccessful bank loan and intervening in that journey to ask a question around help. Now, what machines can do well is if you have mass data sets and you can label them so you can classify the response types, then the more of that you do, the more that your algorithms, that your your underlying maths can get better at matching what a human would do and then exceeding what a human would do. Now. Uh, but when the machine has a, a, an almost infinite memory, and the machine will work day and night, and as instantaneously as you want, so if you want in the modern era to to have that sort of Twitter esque experience of instant response to questions, then machines are the only things that can do that twenty four seven. And so, so for me, it's that the, the magic of computing is is the vast amount of information that machines can hold. And then once you've trained your algorithms, the machines can begin to learn. They can see some patterns in data and react to things in ways that are expected, uh, but give a better customer experience.
1: So it, does it really take learning from machines and or is it is it more of a case of uh, giving them a better how to instructions? Are they actually learning? As, as
2: a, in a human sense? Uh, well, that's a very that's a very interesting question. And uh, my, my PhD is in biochemistry, so I come from the sort of natural sciences side of uh, of the technical uh, track. And uh, um, I don't think we're ever so clear yet how the brain works and uh, and what intelligence truly is. So uh, there's there's something of a confusion in the notion of making something artificial if you don't fully understand what it is. Uh, But the notion of learning, if you imagine an algorithm is a newborn baby, then it doesn't understand anything. Uh, when you feed it information, like you would uh, teach a baby to speak, then it can learn, and at some point, it can take the, the words that you're teaching it and form it into sentences, and start to advance in ways that you haven't taught it. And that's not a bad analogy uh, for an, uh, for a machine learning process, because it is possible once you've trained your machine to uh, allow it to arrive at making a decision with a degree of confidence that is equivalent to a, a decision a human would make. Let me give you an amusing example. I'm, I'm at present with my company uh, uh, going through uh, labeling a profanity uh, data set. So we have a relatively modest number of quite rude replies. Now, um, because we're dealing with millions of pieces of communication a week, we have thousands of these. So people are mostly very polite, but sometimes people just flip and they say lots of rude things. And uh, we have hundreds of uh, of, uh, phrases and words that uh, would um, correspond to profanity. Now, sometimes this can be very funny. Sometimes this can be ironic or sarcastic. This can simply be to, to emphasize a point. Sometimes this can be that was brilliant, in which case that's not a negative. That's a positive. Now, if you've got enough of that data and you analyze that data in context, so you're looking at. The question you asked before that resulted in the answer that was given you can actually make some assumptions and you can label that data and then your algorithms can actually make a decent stab a sort of 95 96 97 confidence level they can make a decent stab at responding to something that contains a profanity but in a sentence structure you've never seen before and so machines are able to do that mostly with profanity, it's a it's an escalation issue. It's actually passing it on to a human being because uh, one thing that I'm fairly confident computers will never do terribly well is being empathetic. So that again, that trade off between the, the the carbon and the silicon, the the human and the machine, um, is is very important. And there are moments in in conversational AI, as we call it, where the machines back off and hand it to a human being, who can then have an attempt at apologising for a poor service or something else.
1: So it sounds like it's, it's, it's beyond choosing the right words.
2: Yeah, it's 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 much it's much more than that. It, it, it's um, uh, the challenges are um, uh, of human understanding of, of languages are uh, to a certain extent we've we've cracked it. I mean, you only have to experience the use of, of Google Home or Alexa or Siri or others to to, to realise that the uh, the machines are making fantastic strides. Um, but the subtlety of, of responses. You take take an example. I saw a comment recently. Uh, it was it wasn't a. Challenge. Channel of ours, I think it was on the news uh, when somebody was uh, was thanking um, uh, Virgin Trains, a train um, uh, operator in the UK, for the wonderful sauna that they had had that morning. Now that's that's heavy sarcasm. They're basically saying the air conditioning unit had broken down and it was a very hot day. Now. Getting a machine to understand that is an enormously difficult challenge, actually, because if you were daft, the machine would go back saying, oh, "I'm really pleased you enjoyed the sauna," and that would have totally missed the point. So you have to build in to to to, uh, um, to natural language understanding uh, an empathy towards what people are saying and I me. Mean, now I'm not saying that we've cracked that, but we're on the way towards cracking that.
1: So uh, you mentioned some of the data that you are start learning from tagging and you mentioned some of the companies uh you're working with but taking all that if you were to kind of uh, paint a picture of a, a customer journey what are what are we looking at what kind of ex- what type of experience uh, are we looking at
2: i think there's a sort of a shorthand that, that i occasionally use uh, a couple actually one is the notion of. Uh, one voice of communication with a, with a service provider. Um, quite often, businesses are, are very siloed. So the information that the billing department has might be different from the information that the service department has, which it might be different from the information a sales or a marketing function has. As a customer, you don't care about that. You have a singular relationship with whoever provides your, your telephony or your television or your insurance product or your bank. And so therefore, um, the notion that conversation should be continuous and Evolve with time is is where the technology can let you go. Uh, the data is quite fractured inside businesses, so this isn't an easy challenge for them. But in terms of the the notion of the other phrase I often use uh, and and have coined is human computer rapport. The notion that if we have a conversation, make it very human. So you meet your neighbour for the first time and you discover that they like football or they like cooking. Or, or, or they have children. The next time you meet them, you know that information and your conversation is likely to be nuanced and informed by that knowledge. Now, in a much simpler way, machines can do that too so if for instance you'd carried out a piece of um uh, work for a customer and they had given you a very poor score for that piece of work using voice of the customer or nps or these other quasi scientific means of collecting um ones to tens but if they've given you a very poor score then the conversation you have with them next time needs to be informed by the fact that they didn't have a good experience with you Um, if however they'd given you a very good score then that conversation should be different so this notion of machines acquiring not prior knowledge of engagements is is a human-like and and not only likely but is already happening now machines can't step over into a sort of creepiness level i don't think a machine can ever be your friend i mean how does it feel it doesn't feel anything i often i often ask the question about uh, about um uh sentience and singularity and i simply reply that after that computer won at chess how did it feel it felt nothing Right? So computers can never feel, but they can be informed and the conversation that you're having can be uh, longitudinal and learn based on your prior engagements and make for a better, smarter customer experience.
1: That sounds like a, a continuum of, of this whole notion of what people are talking about in terms of uh, customer data and all that, being able to kind of compose a single um a view of each customer is this what is required
2: it is and uh, and obviously um many crm systems will will make uh, great claims and rightly so to hold this sort of single view of of a, of a customer relationship hence the cr bit of crm um i think where it starts to um get difficult certainly for for me is what we do is essentially proactive outbound conversation now most crm vendors will are not that interested in that world because they're selling their software on a perceived license basis and so they like to have a human being sitting in front of their software that acts as a sort of mediator between what the machine holds and what the customer requires now in the modern era with the, the, the kind of sophistication in natural language understanding and AI in general and the ability to, to cycle across all channels to communicate with people. Uh, that's not, uh, that's not the future. The future has to involve proactive conversation as well to improve that customer experience further. And that's where, um, uh, That's where CRM needs to change. It needs to do a little bit like um, uh, web hosting has gone. Um, uh, CRM needs to go more to a transactional basis rather than a per seat license basis in the same way that that your AWS or your Azure or your Google Clouds are now transactional, not um, having to buy vast numbers of servers and stick them in racks with uninterrupted power supplies and all the rest of the stuff that I did 20 years ago.
1: I'm not going to ask you about that.
2: No, it was great fun. I did it. I'm so old.
1: <laughs> but um, so let, let me break that down a little bit. So basically, we started out, you know, kind of facilitating a, a better experience um, and talking with a, say, customer service agent and a customer. Now you're beginning to talk about this more of a proactive. Um, kind of initiating um, a, a conversation or triggering some kind of action because you know these things about the customer and, and whatnot. Now, is it good for the customer um, in, in, in terms of uh, their service provider knowing that much about them?
2: Uh, I I think your your question is uh, how Orwellian this can become. And and I think there are a number of examples out there where things get a bit um, – we we sometimes refer to it as passing a red face test. We don't want to get too um, uh, too irritating or too presumptuous. I think, however, um, customers like to be informed they like to know what's going on so customer service is is probably the most important um, new frontier for for communication because if you look at at so many services let's take a bank loan or a mortgage or broadband or mobile telephony all of the services in in many countries my own included not not the case all over the world but my own country included they're almost identical. Whether I get my TV service from company X or company Y or company Z, I can use the same kind of over-the-top software to watch whatever programs I want to on Netflix. My broadband, I just expect to work. My mobile phone, I just expect to work. I've got a credit rating, and so the mortgage offer I get is going to be the same from from one bank to the next. Therefore, what makes it different is if customer service is perfect. Now, you can never employ enough people for perfect customer service. It's not possible to have a one-to-one relationship between your 10 million customers and your, your 10 million service agents. So if you have to make a call, and let's face it, most times when you're engaging with brands via the telephone or web chat or whatever else it is it's because stuff's gone wrong you know where's my order why is this broken what's going on why haven't you turned up Um, if you can proactively communicate to those people to tell them those things you know we're going to be late because of the weather or we can't turn up today because of this or we are going to be there on friday at nine o'clock is that okay would you like to reschedule that is the kind of communication that everyone benefits from just being told what's happening even when it's a bad thing being told is much better than just staying silent and then waiting for the calls to come in. And call uh, call centres cost a fortune. I mean, we've got in the UK, there are a million people employed in call centres. 6% of the working population of Scotland are employed in call centres. In the US, it's just under 4 million people. Now, the churn of these people is enormous. I know of one company who have 10,000 people in a particular call centre to do a particular thing in the The telephony and they get a hundred percent churn every eight months. So high that they don't train them anymore. Just think on. They stop training them because they leave too quickly. Now it's a job that humans don't want. It's a job that machines do better. And the job that humans want is the thing that humans do best. So solving a problem that's very complicated or dealing with, a, with a, an issue that's very tough. I'll give, you, I'll give you a lovely example. I was talking to an insurance company recently around uh, life insurance products. And they say we typically just get the one call Right, And the reason for that is, um, is, let, let's say it's me, I've taken out life insurance, and let's say just after this recording I dropped down dead. My wife will then look through all my paperwork, it'll take her several weeks because it's scattered all around the house, and eventually find a number to ring. She'll ring it up. She does not want to speak to a computer. She will probably, well, she might be celebrated, but let's pretend she's upset, right? She wants to speak to a human being. She wants empathy. The conversations that first happen with this insurance company can take up to two hours. Now, machine's absolutely not required there absolutely categorically the worst possible thing you could do however after that machines are best let's make sure that we've got the death certificate let's make sure that we've you know telling you how long it's going to take before the payout's going to come let's let's communicate the correct bank account details to make the payment to, all those things, machines are best at doing that. So, it's it's always horses for courses. So, yes, I think I think there is a sort of Orwellian challenge towards um, uh, these things, but at the end of the day, the differentiation between most brand, brands is going to have to be customer service, because pretty much, not always, but most services are very, very similar now. So, it's the human bit that makes a difference.
1: So, Given that kind of interaction and and how it happens along many, many stops in that customer journey, let's say it's a, inevitable there, uh, sometimes the, the handshake between machine and, and human agent does, you know, have to happen, like, where are we at in terms of uh, making that Kind of work together. This whole machine-to-human agent, and 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 what is uh, being better uh, performed these days currently uh, by machines?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and, and exactly when and where. Um, is open to experimentation is the truth of it. it, it it's a little bit of a of a, a brave frontier. Actually, it's a bit of a new frontier. Um, so there are there are some moments where it's just obvious. Okay, so in the example of the um, uh, the life insurance first call, a human every time. Okay, Uh, so that's obvious. But but let's say let's go back to profanity filtering. Right. So let's go back and look at a customer journey that's broken in some sense. Now, that break in the customer journey might be because of terrible customer service full stop, in which case the moment someone starts to to get quite cross, having not been crossed before That's probably the moment that human intervention needs to take place, but there is cross and there is not cross. So there might be a a combination of profanities about the cost of a service, but actually the the majority of the content of the messaging is actually very positive about the the work that was done. At that point, it's then a trade-off, a decision that, that needs to be made by the brand to say, actually, our lifetime value of this customer typically is three or four years. If they have a bad experience, that might be two or three years, in which case at this moment, we think we should intervene and 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 talk to that person and, and spend the extra money to make sure that they're happy. But that has to be done experimentally. And I'm a scientist by background. So every time an intervention is made, you need to make one and zero choices about that to actually prove whether that was a good thing to do or a bad thing to do and, and actually driving brands towards thinking about um simple a b testing and and um, even testing that we do lots and lots of a b testing around formality or informality about short form messaging um you have to do that with control groups you have to test and test again and you have to look for improvements and trends and uh and it and it's it's actually quite complex to do but it's the only way of doing it. you have to be very um uh numerate in your thinking about these engagements.
1: Any of the examples you are thinking of, insurance companies and whatnot, have you seen some exciting results? Um,
2: I think a lot of the stuff that we do in the, the telephony industry is um, uh, feels to us to be uh, quite normal because we were doing it for many years. But we have a... Um, if you looked at, there's, there's a product suite we have called appointment control. So this is somebody is going to have an appointment for the installation of something or the repair of something. Uh, most organizations are quite poor at communicating what's going to happen to those, um, uh, to those customers, or they might go down a sort of mono channel approach. They might say, Oh, it's in our app, you know, the one you haven't bothered to download. Or we'll send you an email to the email address that we haven't properly got. Or, or we'll make a phone call, but we have our call center employed between 9 and 5, and, and you're at work, so he won't reach you. Um, so if you do what we do, which is cycling across, across all channels available to us, a text message, an instant message, a phone call, all automated, of course, reach someone, then you are more likely to have a successful engagement. And you are also able to to time that engagement because you know it's going to happen between two and three, so you can survey afterwards and say how was it for you in the moment of service delivery um if you um if you do all of those things then you get a um uh, then you get a very good um uh, a very good and very clear r o i because most companies will know exactly how much it costs. To send a person in a truck to do something. And those costs vary in the UK. Probably the lowest we see is about £40 probably the equivalent of $40 today. Um, uh, In the US, that can be quite a lot higher, upwards of $140. So on that basis, um, if you can reduce um, failed appointments by 10 or 15 or 20 percent, so one of the big telcos in the States, we've just come to the end of a proof of concept, which is now going national from next week, uh, the answer is 12.8 percent. So 12.8 percent times Tens of millions of people times a hundred odd dollars is a massive ROI, and also there's some environmental benefits to that as well because you're not wasting fuel going to unnecessary um, uh, locations, and there's very significant customer benefits as well because the customers happier because it happened um, right first time. We have a client who um, repair washing machines who used to do it right first time one in ten. So one in 10 times, they turned up to people's homes, looked at the washing machine, they knew there were 98 drums in their range, and the van only carried two, and so do the maths, so about one in 50 times, they could do it first time, the rest of the time they went, now I've got that, I'll have to come back. A washing machine, right, you're going to be quite cross about that, right, laundrettes don't really exist anymore, so what do you do, you just start to smell, or you run out of clothes, or both right? So what we do is we proactively communicate with them. We get the serial number back of the device. The customer's going to want to give it to you. They're going to want to be accurate because they want it fixed. And now they fix it nine times out of 10. So there's all sorts of really obvious um, benefits beyond the better customer service, beyond the definite higher nps scores you get from being proactive uh, so so the, the the rois are enormous one of our challenges as a business is we are hugely skewed towards working with very large companies because we're a transaction model we can basically get paid per conversation hence the reason we work in telcos or whirlpool's the largest white good manufacturer in the world and, and so forth um, where i'd like um, to see more of this kind of work is is lower down uh, in smaller companies where maybe only have two uh, 200, 250,000 customer engagements. Uh, those people are just as as worthy of communicating to. We just need to get the maths right on, on 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 that, so that we can we can work there as well.
1: So let's say the ROI is is improving, and industry as a whole, we start actually seeing some numbers to at least a benchmark against. So in in the boardrooms. Of of the uh, corporate world, um, do you have any other questions in addition to ROI that's nagging them? Or you know, you, you mentioned earlier on about red face tests. Is this is there uh, common questions you have to answer in terms of uh, some of the ethical questions that might arise? Uh,
2: yes, there are. I mean, there there are sort of. Um Obviously, for, for, for some years, the issue of, of data protection is, is, is front of mind for all, all companies. I mean, bear in mind, we're getting um, uh, not, not massive amounts of data, but if you want to write a good message that gets a response, you need to know certain things, somebody's name where they live if you're going to go there uh so uh and and and, and products and service and what have you so so gdpr is, is top of mind for us i, I only employ um 60 people uh, and it seems sometimes about half of those are involved in um gdpr related matters and and rightly so you know we we have to take that extraordinarily seriously i think the other thing that Troubles me, uh, and I think this will become increasingly difficult, and we have addressed it ourselves, but it's easy for us to do so. Is um, AI as a service products, uh, which are black box and don't explain what they're doing. I think that their days are numbered. I don't see how that works in a GDPR world. So uh, a lot of, um, probably, 50, 60, 70% of the AI claims made in... uh, I I work in uh, what we laugh and they call Silicon Roundabout in Shoreditch in London. And probably as much as three quarters of the companies that are talking about AI are actually backing off that AI to one of the big players, the usual suspects, your IBMs, your Googles, your Microsofts, or what have you. Um, Now, the decisions that their AI is making... Is not easily explainable. Sometimes it's just it's just too complicated to to explain and make visual. Um, I think there's a big backlash against that. I think companies will be thinking, well, why should I give all my data to you so you can make my service av- a better and you make that improvement available to my competitor that that makes investment decisions difficult for people to understand um i see both sides of that argument but i understand it uh, but for us we 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 have one major advantage which which goes back to the simple the simple coincidence of us starting the conversation and it being short form where we're asking singular questions it means that it's um, the decisions we're making are relatively simple there's still some hideous maths behind it but they're relatively simple and therefore it's possible to the whole issue of um, XAI, of explainable ai is going to become more and more prevalent and and you i think you are on a bound to hold your data for your client and not share it with other clients to train your algorithm on their data for their people because it's theirs and and then also um, explain what you did and how you did it and that's the next big push. And I'm certainly seeing some some look of puzzlement on the faces of. Uh, I was in a in a pitch with a American bank in New York not that long ago, where they were telling me how. How, uh, how vastly complex their AI approval process was, and they'll have a, a board of experts. And, uh, and I was sitting there thinking, that's good, but I reckon I can outbid you with my AI board, which has some of the best profs in the UK on this, so we're going to end up with some kind of intellectual standoff. Um, that's not wildly helpful, but the notion of white box uh, explainable is, is, is going to become more and more of an issue
1: not to belabor the point here, but um, knowing that you had an academia background as well, the collaboration you are talking about, is that different from, you know, what you used to do in, in academia or a more scientific field?
2: It's a challenge. Uh, it, it really is. And it's getting worse, actually. So um, uh, I, I know uh, quite a few um academic institutions and i have quite a few um pals who 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 work in, in that world and um there's sort of been they're being picked off one by one. <coughs> so the, uh, the the large American software houses are are looking at, at academic institutions, and they are hoovering up the uh, the talent there. And I understand why, but and there's a big but here. Science is there's a, there's a, a cliche, a quote from Isaac Newton that I um I saw further because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And what that that that's trying to say is that academia is an advancement based on prior research and any research needs to be published and it needs to be peer-reviewed and it needs to be able to be tested by others to prove it works. Okay. Otherwise you end up with a sort of cold fusion arguments, uh, 20 odd years ago when people said they cracked sort of the perpetual motion machine and they hadn't. It couldn't be tested. It didn't work. It was nonsense. Now, if you've got large software houses hoovering up, um, academics, the best minds, then putting them inside a sort of, um, client confidentiality wrapper. That will slow development down. That is a massive disadvantage. Now, what that means for a tiny company such as mine in comparison is 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 equally problematic. So I have an AI board, which is it's people by people like Nick Jennings who's the AI lead at Imperial College and the AI lead at King's College um, uh, Michael Lurk and and the guy that invented argumentation technology the most complicated NLP challenge is a guy called Chris Reed up at Dundee now now I I'm supporting them in certain of their research ambitions and understanding that whilst my desire would be to retain the IP, that's not how it works. So there will be situations where we'll be supporting stuff, uh, our customers will be sharing data, where we will be um, stopping ourselves from being able to patent it in Europe, because we will have to publish it in order to, to satisfy what academia is. Now, uh, that It's a little bit different in the US and we have Pat pendings on on, on various of our own technology. I'm an inventor on a a couple of uh, patents in in the US. Um, So it's a little bit easier out there than it is in Europe. But it's a really, really difficult problem Um, and one that I think is going to get worse. Because at the end of the day, most, most innovation comes from two places, academia and small teams. Innovation does not come from giant software houses. They buy it from small teams or academia. And if they hoover all of that up, then we will not advance as a species as quickly as we have in the past. And that's bad.
0: Thank you again to Dr. Mark Smith for joining us today. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode for the conclusion of the conversation with Dr. Smith. You can find out more about Dr. Smith and Contact Engine at contactengine.com. find out more about Gene and Tintech, visit tintech.com. Make sure to search for Mobile Interactions Now in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. So on behalf of the team here at Tintech, thanks for listening.